So much of our lives are lived by habit. Some of those habits are bad ones and tend to be life-draining. Some of them are good and help us actually live. In today's episode, I'll share a recent conversation with Justin Whitmill Early, author of the recently released InterVarsity Press book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Welcome to the Unhurried Living Podcast. Back in podcast episode 23, Jim and I talked about the idea of a rhythm or a rule of life. It's really quite an ancient idea. Maybe the most famous rule of life is the one written by Benedict of Nursia for his community of desert Christians. It still guides the life of Benedictine communities around the world nearly 1,500 years later. A rule of life provides a structure of practices that enable us to live and work rooted in the kingdom of God. A rule of life helps us enter into Jesus' rhythm of work and rest. Now today, I'll share a recent conversation with Justin Whitmill Early, author of The Common Rule. I had the treat of serving as an endorser for this book, and this is what I wrote about it. Creation is full of holy rhythms of life. There is a way to live that honors and embodies these rhythms. The Common Rule is a beautiful, inviting resource that helps us do just that. It's an important guide to living more deeply rooted in God's life-giving kingdom. I do highly recommend this book. And here's just a little bit about the author. Justin Whitmill Early is the creator of The Common Rule. The web address is thecommonrule.org which is a program of habits designed to form us in the love of God and neighbor. He's also a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. He previously spent several years in China as the founder and general editor of the Urbanity Project and as the director of Thought and Culture Shapers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving the community through arts. He and his wife, Lauren, have four sons, and live in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you'll enjoy listening to our recent conversation. So welcome, Justin, to the Unhurry Living Podcast. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Alan. I've been looking forward to it as well. So I have to say, I really enjoyed reading your book. It is a beautiful book, um, both in content in, and design. I really love how it turned out. I'd love to hear a little bit of the story of how this book came to be. You talk about it in the book, and I'd love to hear something of the pathway that brought you to these uh, daily and weekly habits. I would love to tell you that. And in fact, I don't really know of any meaningful way to introduce the ideas in this book or the habits in this book other than telling my story, um, which by the way, as you'll quickly learn, is a story of failure, not triumph. Um, <laughs> you know, Stumbling and grace led to these habits. So. You know, my story starts when I, um, right after college, went to China as a missionary, um, and my wife was with me most of those years. And so I started my, my career as in a missional mindset, and I, I would have done that for a long time, except for that uh, encounter with a Chinese political protester on the roads of Shanghai one day changed the course of my calling, which is an interesting story, but probably for another time. Hmm. So suffice it to say, I left China 
and decided that the Lord was calling me now to work missionally within law and business as a missionary. And I say that because I, I would have said that at the time. And I, as a lawyer, still now, I still say that. So, but it's important to know that I felt like I had a calling. Um, what I see now, though, is that the environment of law school and early stages of law practice were a formation, a habit formation machine that I was unaware of at the time. So I had this Christian calling, and yet the practices of my life quickly assimilated to what the practices of top law school students and ambitious young attorneys look like. And that was a ton of calendar appointments, always adding another resume activity. Um, it was always being attentive to the screen and the next ding and the next alert. It was being quick. It was being proficient in all things. Um, it often involved staying up too late and waking up too early to pack in a little more. And this was all working really well for me in some senses. I graduated the top of my class. Um, I got a very you know high profile job at an international law firm doing mergers and acquisitions. Um, but under the radar, again, I see now, did not know then in my life, it was like the engine was running too hot and I didn't, I didn't know it. So the first time that I started to realize it was early in my law practice when suddenly one night I woke up into this existential panic mm. for which I had no explanation. It was like in the middle of the night, I just woke up. I talk about this in, in, in the book. Um, and, you know, that was one thing I managed to fall back asleep. But, but what happened is that it kept happening. And that about two days later, you know, I was hitting the 36 hour mark of not sleeping because I just couldn't calm the shakes and the heartbeat. And I went to the emergency room and the doctor told me very, you know, unclimatic. It was a very anticlimactic moment um, that, that I just had what is called anxiety. And it was super common. They sent me home with some sleeping pills and, and my life um, rapidly devolved because the sleeping pills had um, unintended side effects of, you know, huge emotional mood swings and, you know, even those, you know, back of the bottle stuff like suicidal thoughts and hallucinogenic mm -hmm. nightmares. And I um, went into a phase where I was beginning to not be able to function. And I started to really worry about whether I was just going to be able to do my job at all. And this began a time in my life where, you know, I couldn't sleep unless I took those pills or drank a few glasses of wine because I needed something to calm down. Mm. And so I had to face for the first time in my life, and especially in that phase of life, a really awkward question of how the missionary to law and business got converted to the nervous medicating lawyer. Mm. Because I, I, I came to change law and business, and I realized it changed me. And in, in, in a dark and you know, difficult way, this is not um, an easy time of life. This is not, I, I even still talk about it sometimes, I think, and just get you know, the goosebumps, because it was a very difficult time. But what made that time, rather than what, what broke that time, what made it was that my wife and my friends stuck very close to me. And I owe it to them about a year later when um, they really encouraged me to try to adopt some limiting habits in my life that would sort of guide me towards the peace that my head professed, but my heart seemed to re refuse. And it's important to note that at the time, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't think this was going to be a big deal. It was just one more thing to try. Um, it was one more thing to engage in. 
But I'll never forget sitting down at a restaurant with two of my best friends about 13, 14 months after this happened and um, asking them to keep me accountable to some little habits that I didn't think would matter that much because I had no idea how much these ordinary formational habits can affect your soul in the most extraordinary ways. And um, to fast forward to the end of the story, my life began to drastically change. And then I became extremely interested in the spiritual disciplines and the sort of practices that incline us towards grace, towards a slower posture of the heart. And this, in particular, Alan, the ones that allowed us to still engage with the world the ways that we felt called to, to be a lawyer, to be a parent. You know, it, it's not easy or you know, peaceful to live in the tumult of the world. But I wanted to try to figure out what are the practices that one might need to engage faithfully in their call while maintaining a faithful heart posture to the gospel. And so this book was born out of the trial and error of that season. And the way it came about was actually, I just started talking to friends, doing it with friends, inviting them to do it with me. And it kind of caught on and became a blog and then became a, a book deal. So I'm a bit of an accidental convert and an accidental author but it's amazing to look back and see the, the way that the lord used my deepest personal failure to create what might now be at least for this moment the best thing that i have to offer yeah. you know to the world so um you know and i hope this might be an encouragement to you l- listeners it's often the lord using our our, our failures to, sh- to show his glory and success yeah i mean uh i think realizing that you know grace in a sense works best in the context of our actual need and often it's our deepest needs exposed that invite the greatest grace and yes and it sounds like that's been very much the journey you've been on and now now you have grace uh thanks to that journey as hard as it may have been to to offer through this book and through the work that you do um, I wonder if you could take a moment, yeah, and uh, maybe just unpack a little bit of what what these habits, these daily and weekly habits you came to in that place of need. Sure. So I might give you an example of the way that my daily routine was working, mm-hmm. because some of the habits I developed were adaptations of the spiritual disciplines to counter the problematic rhythms that I already had in place. So to give you an example of all that, I pre-anxiety crash, I would wake up in the morning, always short on sleep because I would never, you know, have a habit of going to bed on time. And there was sort of a, an identity formation going on there where I thought, you know, I could push my body to all limitate across all limitations that I would just be fine. Kind of like a godlike mentality. Um, habit number two was that I would look at work emails right when I woke up. Because though I felt I could, you know, it would be okay if I missed a quiet time or some time in prayer and meditation, but it was not okay to not have a quick response to the office. Because if I, you know, wasn't performing at the highest level, then who was I? You know, my identity began to be rooted in work because of that habit. Um, Habit three was our family would eat, you know, breakfast on the go while everybody got somewhere late. And um, at the office, I would eat lunch you know, through work at my desk. Um, and it, I realized I was cultivating this idea of, you know, to be busy is not only okay, but actually probably good because that means you're important. And so I had to stay busy to stay important, never say no. Mm. Habit number four would be keep all these alerts on my phone and on my laptop, you know, all in front of me while I work. 
you know, the formational thing happening there is, you know, to stay updated is the most important thing about work, not to stay focused, not to be relational, not to be creative, not to leave, but just stay updated. Um, so when I just, I just stop there and I think back and I think, you know, it's not even 10 a.m., but by not having any formational habits in my life, I was being rigorously formed by these cultural default habits hmm. that were forming me in these, you know, senses of anxiety and omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. I was trying to be God. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, you know, the wheels fell off because I'm not that, that I'm not. I'm a limited creature like the rest yeah. of us. Surprise, surprise. We are not, you are not. And um, so when I began to tinker with, you know, this stuff, I, I started to think what, what would be keystone habits, the keystone habits being small, almost micro changes that have macro effects, like the first domino in a chain. What would be keystone habits to address these sort of idolatries that were in my life? So some of them that are in the book were scripture before phone to try to reverse that order of what do I look to for my identity first thing in the morning, which is a vulnerable moment to, to mm. wake up and start to look for your identity. One of them was just um, a daily habit of having a communal meal every day to say that if, if I was living at such a breakneck pace that I couldn't sit down with anybody to eat a meal, then I was probably forming my life in terms of ambition and not community. Mm. W- one of them was to turn my phone off for an hour every evening. And that's another one of the daily practices, just to say that, you know, the workday has a lot of demands and to be an excellent worker, you, you need to answer them. But, but everybody, no, nobody is so important that they can't have an hour off where they just become present with people. And um, I could go on, you know, habit, weekly habits of Sabbath, Sabbathing, talking to friends. I'm sure we'll talk more about those, but those are a couple. And, and I hope you can see how they're specifically targeted to counter the modern routines that form us if we don't do anything about them. So um, the title of your introduction to the book is Discovering the Freedom of Limitations, which, of course, is not how a lot of people think about freedom in their lives. Would you say a little more about your vision of freedom uh, in this book? Absolutely. This is such an important concept to the book, and, and it was such an important revelation for me. So in all the, the practices that were going on under the radar that I just told you about, one of the most fundamental ideas that drove a lot of those was, you know, I can't have any limitations on my life because to restrict my freedom is to restrict my ability to, you know, become who I'm meant to be or become who I am or live the good life. As most, I, mean, I think, good Americans think, <laughs> I thought that, that freedom was ultimate. Um, and that freedom meant not having any limitations mm. and having the ability to choose what you think is best in every moment. Um, I now see that, that that perceived freedom is actually an awful form of slavery because the reality of being a, a human is that there are always limitations. And so to try to throw them all off always will mean that you're just taking on the limitations of some unseen master who probably does not love you. And so for me, and, you know, and this came through looking, you know, searching the scriptures more carefully to think about what freedom actually meant. And, you know, um, it's a, it can be a controversial language, but it's actually a very freeing idea when you really look at the New Testament and, and see that Jesus's version of freedom is to take on his yoke. 
mm-hmm. is to, in Paul's language, become a you know a, a, a bond servant of Christ. It's it's in slavery to the good master that we're actually set free to live how we were meant to live. And and when I was able to sacrifice our our culture's notion of freedom for the biblical one, I started to realize slowly, but a very a, a key idea. And that was that what if the good life does not come through seeking to throw off all limitations? What if the good life comes from choosing the right ones? And the right ones are going to come from the God who creates us and loves us and his name is Jesus. What kind of limitations would he put on our life? And um, this changed everything because, because if that is the real way to freedom, then then you can become lovingly obsessed, like like eagerly running towards what are the right boundaries of my life so that I can run towards love? What what, what guardrails do I need on this road in order to drive well and drive fast? We, we actually intuitively understand these things mm. mechanically. We understand them in music. You know, if a plane is not fine-tuned, it's not going to have that beautiful freedom to fly. Um, if a musician does not know his or her scales, you know, he or she is not going to have the beautiful beauty to uh, the, the beautiful ability to improvise like true freedom comes in the right limitations and that's true in our habits that's true in our spiritual disciplines yeah yeah i think um what the mistake i think we make is that um we could live without limitations when in fact there we are by nature limited what we do have freedom to do is choose our limitations and yes this is where you know, your insight that jesus is an absolute master at showing us how to live within the framework we were meant to live within. And that these kinds of limitations, these practices, these habits, these uh, disciplines, they put us in the place that is safe and spacious and well-protected. And it's a place of life for us. And just living by the whatever I feel like in the moment or whatever the culture around me tells me I must do is not freedom at all. Yes, it's true. And it's it's such an important message, I think, to for our moment in our part of the world, because not everybody grows up in this definition of freedom, but our the West does. And it is the cause of so much unseen bondage and slavery to dangerous ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we because the paradox is that you know, in, in thinking that we're headed towards the good life and so many of our, our neighbors, you know, you know, well-intentioned think this, that, that, you know, they're going to find the good life by doing whatever they want. And, and it's, it's, it does tragic things to our soul. So I actually think it's just a wonderful message of love to try to speak into our cultural moment to say that there's a better way to freedom. There's a better way to live. And it's in following a person who loves you and his mm. name is Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things you talk about uh, in terms of these habits is uh, the reality that we live in a profoundly, you know, distracted culture. In fact, the subtitle of your book is Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. So I'd love to hear you talk a little more about the habits you describe in this book, how those help us cultivate purpose and focus when distraction seems so very common for a lot of us. Sure. A lot of the habits are targeted towards technology, mm. um, which 
which don't make them new habits. I mean, they're all sort of ancient spiritual disciplines recasts for the modern moment. But let's take, for example, the habit of turning off your phone for an hour a day. Um, you know, that's a new habit in that smartphones have only been around for just over a decade. Yeah. So we don't even really fully appreciate or know the effects they're having yet. But we know enough to be concerned and maybe even gravely concerned. Hmm. And, but the ancient discipline or the, the virtue beneath that habit is the virtue of, of, of presence or the practice of silence. And, and here's what's at stake. I think, you know, we all increasingly live like heart surgeons on call as if we, we cannot miss a beep or an alert or a ding or else somebody, maybe us, is going to die. I actually was just, I just <laughs> noted somebody. And actually, this is an important thing to note. So I just noted someone on social media responding to one of my um, posts. And this is important to note because I am on social media. I do engage. I do use my phone a lot. Yeah. But they made they made the joke that, you know, they tried the habit of turning off their phone for an hour last night and they were amazed. Like, no one died. They didn't die. No one else died. It was amazing. <laughs> um, but it's it's actually, you know, it's funny until we think about it. But we really are. We, we've become convinced that um, we are that important. Yes. Or, and that our devices are that important. And, and it's just an incorrect view of who we are and what's happening in the world. And so for me, I, you know, I was very nervous as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer who was paid to be on call for clients to try this habit. But mm -hmm. I also sensed that there was something deeply wrong, even with the way that I worked, because to never be off exhausts you in a way that, co that has costs on good work. And so, I, you know, I remember trying this um, a couple years ago for the first time, I just said, all right, from about 7 to 8 p.m., I'm going to turn my phone off. And, you know, I'll call that client back after the kids go to bed if, if I get a message or I'll respond to that email later. And the most amazing thing happened. First, I, I became present again to my family in a way that I had missed. And that was a beautiful thing. What's also equally as important is what didn't happen. And that was that nobody seemed to care. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I don't think anyone even noticed that I was gone. And that was also an important realization, just to realize my smallness in the world. Um, and so that led me in that keystone habit of turning my phone off for an hour each day, which I still do. I just come home, turn it off, put it in my top dresser drawer and have dinner with my family. It also led, and this is why all these practices are keystone habits. It also led to, all right, well, maybe at work, I'm just going to turn this thing on do not disturb and try to focus for the morning and then return calls after that. Or maybe, you know, on a Saturday, I'm just going to leave it at home sometimes. Uh, and it started to lead to these other moments where I realized the real value of work and of relational life is to be present to the task. And um, this is a spiritual discipline. It is also just the way to be a good worker. This is actually what we need out of our employees. It's what we need out of our managers to avoid distraction. Distraction is becoming a spiritual and an employment issue. Mm. So, you know, I, I think... The habits of media engagement, um, scripture before phone. There are other habits in the common rule that try to deal with this issue of distraction, but that's one of the. This is one of the key ones. Yeah, well, one of the things we've been doing here. Uh, in fact, our community, many in our community, are, in a sense, uh, giving up hurry for Lent is what we've been calling it. And um, the way the shape that's taken for my wife and I is, we've decided that we will be screen free from seven o'clock on. In the evenings, so for us that means wow. the phone, it means the computer, it means the television, 
And, you know, <laughs> I, I like to sit in front of the television and turn my brain off. I, I'll, I'll admit that. Right. Um, so it, it's very much a stretch and a discipline. Uh, and yet uh, everything you just described, you know, that uh, the world didn't end. Uh, I didn't miss out on something critical. Um, but in fact, we've had conversations. I've read more uh, books than I mm-hmm. usually do. Um, I've been going to bed earlier than I usually do. I'm not going to bed numb like Mm -hmm. I often do. Um, So I really resonate with, you know, this, with what you're saying about these habits that, um, you know, we just unquestioningly assume certain things about our lives. You know, I'm, I'm 57. That means I grew up when almost none of these technologies were popular. I, I can still remember watching Super Bowl one on my parents' friends' brand new color TV. Wow, <laughs> wow. <a> color <laughs> TV. You know, so I've got this range of, of experience, and yet that does not change the fact that I am often captured by these oh, yes. technologies that oh, I've yes. become accustomed to. And uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciate what you're saying. Uh, to, to take another uh, angle on what you've written, you know, this idea uh, you write about uh, of a rule of life often a rule of life drafted in a North American context tends to look very individualized. It's my practices of solitude and silence. It's my spiritual life. But you describe a number of habits that really are intentionally practiced in community. So I'd love to hear you talk more about this dimension of our, our living together in the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. Yes, yes. Okay, so there's such an important concept for what I'm trying to lay out here. Yes. So. I loved one of the things that you just said a minute ago. You said going to bed numb because of, you know, some of the undisciplined habits with screens. Mm. And um, it is possible to look at a lot of these common rule habits and at least initially think this is a form of self-help. Um, this is a form of personal spiritual disciplines. And there's, there, there is some of that personal spiritual discipline in here. But if, if you read the habits in the book and you look, about the way, look at the way they're diagrammed out, one side of the habit diagram is four practices for the love of God to, to form us in the love of, of God. And the other four practices are directed towards forming us in the love of neighbor. Mm. And so when I think about things that I just talked about, for example, turning your phone off an hour a day, or one of the weekly habits is to curate your media intake by setting an hour limit on it. That, that is, you know, pick an hour limit. I suggest four and then pick things that are worth watching. Mm-hmm. that are worth engaging, that are worth streaming. Some people, you know, right, rightly think, yeah, initially that's just a benefit to us. We, we sort of, you know, we get our life back, we get our brains back, we get our time back. The, the deeper undercurrent for me is, is that we become present again to a world who needs us. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is much more about the families that we become present back to, the workplaces that we can now engage and be great employees in, the news feeds or the political discourse or the contemporary issues that we actually need to speak into, but will not be able to if we are so inundated and distracted by angry, frustrated ideas of discourse that have no justice in them. So I, I have a great concern about what you said a couple minutes ago about becoming numb, because I think, I think our undisciplined engagement with media. And here, I, I, I mean, you know, Netflix series, but also 
media engagement. I think Twitter, uh, you know, cable news, the, the kind of things that stir us up because it works for user ratings, we get angry. So we come back for more anger is actually an addictive pattern. Mm. Um, I think we're in gr- great danger of missing out on being a presence of justice in our culture because we're, we just get so caught up in being angry about the next thing that the, the addiction is just to rage. It's not to speaking truth or speaking prophetic words. It's to being updated, being mad or being numb or, or being tribal. And, and I deeply long for a different way of engagement. So there's a couple of things going on in the common rule that are tended to push us towards neighbor, but some of these media ones to me are really important. The, the broader framework is also just the common rule is called the common rule uh, because it's a rule of life for common people in communities. So I, I don't believe meaningful habit change can be done alone. I think that these kinds of things need to be practiced in small groups or in congregations or in families. And I think it, the idea is to turn turn us outward to our neighbor, to get us out of our own heads, out of our own anxious hearts and into the love of the world. I mean, we, we need to resist the world for the sake of loving the world. And that's what these habits are about. Yeah, I love that. You know, the, there is, of course, a way in which we um, we find ourselves personally uh, blessed, graced, helped. Uh, but we are not blessed just to be blessed. You know, we're right. blessed for the sake of others. You know, uh, it goes all the way back to some of what God says in his uh, initial invitation to Abraham. And, and I was thinking the exact same thing. That's right. <laughs> this is the direction of scripture. Yeah, this is the story. Um, uh, so we do need to be blessed. We do need to enter into the kinds of peace and joy and love that the spirit would wish to bear within us. We need to be those kind of people, not just so we can benefit, but so that we have a kind of surplus of kingdom good that we could share in our families. We could share in our workplace. We could share in our faith communities. And certainly beyond that, we could express to a a very needing world uh, that so needs to see what the kingdom actually looks like in real people's lives and in yes. a real community yes. of, of friends. I I love it. I completely agree. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that because you said it so well. <laughs> well, well, thanks. Uh, so, you know, one of the things you mentioned in, in some of your comments a moment ago is this dynamic of how we engage with, with media and technology. And I, I really appreciated the simple keystone habit of scripture before phone one of the biblical phrases I've been using um, for myself in this is in the morning, you know, what am I seeking first? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Jesus uses the language of seek first, uh, you know, God's kingdom, God's right way. There's a focus on who God is and God with me and God leading my life. And your way of talking about that is, you know, scripture before phone. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that habit? Because I think that one is is really strategic in ways that a lot of people probably don't even think about. Yes, yes. And this habit is born out of my own experience because of the problems that I had for many years, either checking email or scrolling social media or scrolling news in bed first thing when I wake. But But I've come to see it not as only a useful habit for rearranging my morning, but also as a habit that mirrors the direction of the gospel. So here's what I mean by that. I realized 
in in the course of many months um, when I was early on in my stages of being a lawyer, I, I would check my email first thing in the morning because I wanted to do well at work and I wanted to, you know, be quick on responses. I wanted to, you know, seem like I was a faithful employee. What, but what I realized after a course of many months, it was that in that moment, my head is asking my phone a fairly simple question. And, you know, what do I need to do today? Who do I need to respond to today? But I realized in the early waking moments of morning, which are vulnerable, formative moments, my heart was saying something very different to my phone. My heart was asking my phone, who do I need to become today in order to be loved? What yeah. kind of person do I need to be to be lovable? And that this is where I now see my head believe the gospel, but my heart through my habits was, was rearranging it. You know, the gospel of Jesus tells me that I... I am not worthy of love, but I am loved anyway by Jesus and his love has made me lovable. And when, when I would put email for scripture, I often, the first thing in the morning began convinced, I became convinced of a different narrative. And that was that, you know, I'm loved today based on what I can accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I have, as if I need to say this, but just to be clear, I have nothing against being a, a good responder on email. I have nothing against reading uh, the news appropriately. I have nothing against engaging with social media appropriately. But I do strongly question and suggest that the first thing in the morning is probably an extremely spiritually dangerous time to do this. Because what tends to happen is that we we root ourselves in the anxiety of the news, the envy of social media, the, the the frenzy of responding to emails, and we start to think that we are lovable based on how we can perform, respond, um, you know, act in these realms. And if we want to be people who, like we were talking about a couple minutes ago, you know, live outward lives for the blessing of our neighbors then we want to flip that. We want to, we want to look to the love of God in the morning so that we can be so confident in his love for us, despite the fact we don't merit it, that we are filled with the kind of resilience that comes with being loved by the creator of the universe. And now we can turn to work. We can turn to other people. We can turn to news. We can turn to our contemporary day issues and, and go out towards them in order to love, not in order to get our love. Yeah. And so much hinges on whether we're engaging in the world in order to earn our love or whether we're engaging in the world because we are love. So mm -hmm. much hinges on that. And the love of our neighbors is at stake. I mean, th this is what we want to be filled with love so that we can go out to love. This is a blessing to them, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so critical. Um, one of the ways I've thought about this, I, I wrote a little bit about this in, in An Unhurried Leader, is that too often we're going to our work to get something. Mm -hmm. When in the kingdom, we go to our work with an abundance of something to give. And the most critical things that I need, you know, joy and love, um, I'm often trying to get that out there somewhere when actually I could bring an abundance of these things in my communion with God into my relationships and into my work and into my communities. And it's just a very simple reversal of, am I seeking something out there that I desperately feel the need for, or am I finding what I need in communion with God and in community with people that I can then bring into the real world of my work or ministry or whatever it might be? Yes. I, I, I 
I love that. I, I tried to frame the chapter in, on this in the book around identity seeking mm-hmm. because I see in my job and so many other people's jobs. This is true whether you're a stay-at-home parent or a lawyer like me. I mean, we're identity-hungry people, and yeah. we we will look daily to things to give us that. And that's why it's so important to first look at the in the lens of Scripture and realize that we already have that. We don't need to go looking for it. Absolutely. The one last practice I wanted you to say a little about is is the practice of Sabbath. It it seems like one that's rather popular to talk about, but but I I find a lot of people when it comes right down to it wrestle for any number of reasons with the actual practice of setting aside a day, you know, that's not measured by productivity. I mean, that's so deep in mm-hmm. our in our wiring, uh, the assumption that uh, a day without productivity would be a, a waste. Can you right. talk some about, you know, your own leaning into and then entering into this practice of Sabbath? Yes, I've, and I've struggled mightily with the, hmm. the, the frustration of not feeling like I'm not being productive for a day. Um, <laughs> You know, because I because it's it's uh, humbled me in, into realizing that I do I am a person who bases my worth on my productivity. Often I am a person who regularly struggles with that, and mm. um, and Sabbath is one of the key things that rebukes that area of sin in my life, mm. and is also one of the key things that blesses me with a much better way of life, and that is a life that you know is rooted in rest. And so I, I do think you're right, Alan. I think a lot of people actually love this idea because it does seem like a, a you know such a cup of cold water, you know, a refreshing drink in our culture of busyness. But I, I, I'm hearing increasingly a lot of people ask questions about just how how does it work. So maybe I'll start just by giving an example of some of the things that I have come and my family has come to do. Yeah. Um, the way that we currently approach Sabbath, which we typically um, do from sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday. And, um, and there's, there's a reason for that, but I'll get there. We, we typically see um, Saturday as a time to be together as a family. Yes, because, you know, I'm off work usually, but also sometimes as a time to get ready. So, you know, we'll try to put things like cleaning the house up, getting things back in order. If I have, you know, an intense work project, putting a few hours into that, sending the kinds of emails I need to send, in order to give me that upcoming off time. So the, I think the lesson there, at least that I've learned, is that Sabbath takes preparation. You, you really do have to think about wherever you are in life, what do I need to do to get to a place that where my soul can, you know, where I can be, you know, lean into rest a little more? Because yeah. the fact is, is it is hard. It is hard to rest in Sabbath if your kitchen is filled with dirty dishes at the beginning of it, you know? Yes. Um, it's it's hard to rest in Sabbath if I know I didn't tell somebody that I wasn't going to respond tomorrow and I know they're waiting on a response from me at work, you know? So some of this preparation is really important. And it's also important for this reason. If you're going to say, I'm going to take a day off of my daily work, let's say, say for me, lawyering, um, I've got to get comfortable with probably telling some of my coworkers that, yeah, I might need to be explicit. I might not. I might need to just say, you know, I'm I'm not going to be online until tomorrow night. So I'll get back to you then if you need me. Um, It requires sort of a, you know, a buy-in of being courageous enough to tell people, but it also requires an an admitting that everything's not going to get done. 
the reality of the world is that I just can't do everything I feel like I need to do. And that's an important, important realization because that's how reality is. Mm-hmm. We, we actually can't finish everything. And when we live in the fiction that we can, we miss a part of the good news of the gospel. And that is that we are a broken and frail people who can't do what even the small little things we want to do, like keep up with the laundry. We can't do them. And that's what makes the news of, of Jesus so good in that in the small things and in the huge things like the salvation of our souls, he has finished everything that needs to be finished. This is why he said on the cross, it is finished. And this is why Hebrews talks about God entering into his eternal rest because the real work of the world is done. And so when we enter into the Sabbath, we habitually weekly celebrate that fact that though we can't finish, the work has been finished on our behalf. And I think from there, then you enter into a a different kind of day where, you know, hopefully you're attending a worship service. Hopefully you're slowing down in some ways. Hopefully you're not working you know, I might do yard work on a Sabbath because for me, that's relaxing. Or I might spend, try to spend more of my time with my kids and let my wife have some time off because that's relaxing for her. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we might try to, uh, we, we always try to have a communal meal together with my extended family because that's a relational rich time where we can come together. All, all these things are sort of the work of rest. And I do think that to really rest, it, it takes some, some work. I mean, some tinkering. And I think I just I would close with this. It's taken us years and years and years to figure out what it really means to rest. And I suspect it will continue to take years and years and years. So for anybody listening that wants to really try, you know, Sabbathing, you should. It's just going to be such a joy for you. But it's also going to be a long, long process. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a phrase in. Uh, Hebrews 4, the phrase goes like this, make every effort to enter his rest, which sounds kind of like an oxymoron, Mm. you know, the idea of making (laughs) effort, (laughs) but also to enter rest. uh, You know, like you, my experience has been that resting takes a lot of work. Sounds cute to say it that way, but, but it really does. It takes the work of preparation and it also takes soul work to, to come to the belief that uh, I am not a person who who um, establishes my identity by my work. I'm a person who expresses my identity in my work. Hmm. My identity is established actually in the places of rest where I'm simply remembering who I am in God, who I am in, in community. Then with that confidence, with that security, I go into a world. I get to join God in the work God's doing. And, yes. but I'm not carrying the heavy end of the yoke, you know, to use. I love, that. I love that phrasing. That's so good. Well, thank you so much for this time. It's been a treat to hear you unpack some of what this book is about. I'm hoping that our audience will take advantage and, and get themselves a copy. Can you let them know uh, how they can find out more about your book and your work? Absolutely. Anybody can go to thecommonrule.org not.com.org and um, click around on the habits and sort of read up some on summaries of them. Uh, You can also, you know, find me. I I do engage, albeit in a limited fashion, but I do engage on, on Instagram and um, Twitter to put some of these ideas out there. So you can, you can find those links through, through my website. And um, of course, buying the book is the, 
the best way to explore in depth these habits, but I've tried to put a lot of resources just out there for free on the website because I, I want as many people as possible to go to the commonrule.org and just start to rethink how their ordinary habits might shape their, their spiritual lives. Absolutely. Well, I, I really highly recommend to our listeners that they get a copy of your book and, and dig into it. And so again, thanks. It's been a great treat to spend this time together, Justin. You're so welcome. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate it. It was such a pleasure to have that conversation with Justin. I especially enjoyed what we had to say about Sabbath and about Justin's very practical counsel for how to step into this life-giving practice. Again, if you want to learn more about Justin, his book, and his work, please visit his website at thecommonrule.org. Thanks again for listening today. As always, we love connecting with more and more friends like you who want to rest deeper, live fuller, and lead better.